Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. This is episode 145 of Historically Thinking. On March 15, 1783, a group of some 100 officers of the Continental Army gathered in a meeting hall in the Hudson Highlands near New Windsor, New York. They were there to consider the late letter from our representative in Philadelphia, as a unsigned note read that circulated around the Army's camp, and what measure, if any, should be adopted to obtain that redress of grievances which they seemed to have solicited in vain. This was the crisis moment of what historians have taken to calling the Newburgh Conspiracy. But what was it? Who was conspiring, if anyone, and if they were, what were their goals? And was the American Revolution really in jeopardy at this moment, just before peace was finally breaking out? These and other questions are addressed by David Head in his new book, A Crisis of Peace, George Washington, The Newburgh Conspiracy, and the Fate of the American Revolution. David is professor of history at the University of Central Florida in Orlando, and this is his fourth book. David Head, welcome to Historical well, Thinking. Thanks so much for having me here today. I'm looking forward to, to our conversation. So uh, what is uh, the crisis of peace? Is this the sort of phony war that follows after you? Yes. So I, I use the, the phrase crisis of peace to uh, – it's kind of an attention-grabbing uh, title, I hope. Uh, because usually peace is a good thing, and it is not a crisis to yeah. have peace come. Uh, but really, I'm talking about this kind of strange two-year period at the end of the American Revolution following the victory at Yorktown. So the Americans forced the British to surrender at Yorktown, and that's October of 1781. But the formal peace treaty, or at least news of the formal peace treaty, does not arrive in the United States until November of 1783. So that's two years, and it turns out that there's not another major campaign, although the people at the time don't know that, and they suspect that there might be more fighting coming, but there isn't. But there's not exactly peace either, and the army remains in the field and always having to be prepared to go back to fight. So they're kind of in a limbo where there's not war, but there's not peace either, and peace might be coming. Or maybe not. It might be more time to wait. And just what exactly is going to happen is not at all clear for that two-year period. Um, from the officer's perspective, I, they I, I, are... Can I just can sure. I just emphasize one thing? Sorry. Um, the uh, Your textbook, what people might remember is a sentence after Yorktown where, you know, Yorktown was really the end of the war. Or maybe more sophisticatedly, King, the King George III wanted to continue the war, but there's no possibility of doing that. That's about it. <laughs> That's the sort of engraving that is in people's heads about the last two years of the American Revolution. Um, and it can't be emphasized enough how differently it looks when you read uh, the letters and papers of people who were actually living through this. Yeah, two years. yes, that, that's exactly right. Um, that's that's the way I taught it. I mean, that's the way I would teach the class. Uh, was you have Yorktown, and then the peace treaty, and then problems with the Articles of Confederation that led to the creation of the Constitution. Right. You zip through that very fast. 
Um, now, after I've, I've done the research, my, my students are treated to a whole lecture on the problems of the 1780s, <laughs> which uh, I'm sure they, they're thrilled that they are probably the only ones in the country that get that in depth on the uh, you know, 1782, 1783. Yeah. Uh, it's a real treat for them. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like it's good for you to remind me even that when Rochambeau, when the French army returns from Virginia after wintering over in 1781-82, you know, Washington still hasn't given up the idea of really winning it all by winning it, by attacking and taking New York. Yes, he remains um, – yeah, he remains fixated on New York throughout. I mean, <laughs> until the very moment he, he enters into New York, uh, you know, to take charge of the British, he is convinced – well, maybe not that moment, that summer of 1783 – he is convinced that he's going to have to do battle to conquer New York, and he tries to convince the French to do yeah, it, I, and they just won't. And you know, he's he's fixated on that throughout the war. Yeah, I, it's um, this gets to some of his priorities and his fears uh, during that time, and his priority is still to to mm -hmm. win it by winning it, not just. Um, it's always interesting, you know, this this George Washington the Fabian strategy is is uh, which has leaked out in the textbooks. So now it must must not be true. I, I, I never have liked that when you read his letters. In fact, I think Hamilton somewhere says, you know, he's not mm -hmm. Fabius, he's Marcellus. He's the sword of Rome. He wants to attack. Um, Washington always wants to attack. Um, it's just, it's, it, it's, it's his common sense that prevents him from doing it. And I think that in 1782, his, I think the greatest blow to his honor, which is uh, his sense of honor is immense, the greatest blow to his honor has been the clumsy way in which he lost New York over, you know, six months of 1776. And he wants to redeem that honor, that, that, uh, his dishonor. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, he eventually, he gets to do it when, when he marches south, <laughs> eventually yeah. to take over peacefully at the, at the very end. Uh, but no, he never got to, to reconquer New York militarily and to, and that's a good phrase to win the war by winning it. Um, yeah. Um, what are some of his <clears throat> – uh, that he faces an immense set of uh, problems, uh, and they are political problems. They are political, civil, military problems in 1782. What, what are so some So getting of them? people to realize that you know, Yorktown is not the end. I, I guess they believe the, the textbook version even in 1781. Um, people – OK, well, this is it. We, we can relax now. Um, he says this over and over again. He gets all these letters from people congratulating him, and he has to write back, you know, thank you very much for your for your, your, your warm greetings, and yes, of course, this does uh, bode well for the future, but remember the old Roman maxim, if you want peace, prepare for war. He uses that language on a couple of occasions, that this is not the time to go slack. This is not the time to relax, that the British... They haven't. They haven't. They haven't uh, given up the war yet. There's no treaty, so getting people to focus on continuing the war is a major issue. And then, very much like the rest of the war, Washington is trying to convince Congress and the states and civilians to support the army, that to remind them they still have an army in the field. That army has not really been paid. Uh, they have not been well supplied. There are revisions that are made to the supply system. They're not working, and they still have awful conditions. You know, so keep people focused on the war still going on and that the army still needs the attention and needs to be supplied. That's really where Washington's focus is uh, after Yorktown victory and through 1782 and into 1783. And I suppose he also faces within the army itself uh, the terrible situation of a, 
of a commander of an army that has nothing to yes, do. Yes, that's one of the things um, that comes out is these guys are bored. I mean, I, I suppose I've never been yeah. in the military, and but you know, I've I've heard that you know it's what is the saying? It's ninety nine percent boredom and one percent terror, or something like that. Yeah, I, that's what they, that's uh, what okay. they call graduate <laughs> school. But go on. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it's. <laughs> Getting these guys, keeping them busy, um, doing things, not to think about all the problems they've had or to you know start to worry about what the future holds. So that's very difficult, trying to keep them drilled and ready to fight if they had to. That's very difficult for, for Washington. So, yeah, keeping the guys busy is, is very difficult. Um, you know, he tries yeah, to, at least to March, kind of inspire March, them, their yeah. love of, of honors and all that kind of thing. But that, you know, it can only work so often. And they aren't, and as usual, they aren't getting paid. Yeah, so so the pay the pay is very complex. Sometimes the states were responsible. Sometimes the Continental Congress was responsible, but whoever was responsible, the money never got there. Um, <laughs> yeah. And there's actually a wonderful line from Robert Morris. Robert Morris is the the superintendent of finance, and he, he basically says, yeah, well, you know, they don't really need a lot of money because they'll, they'll, the, the soldiers, they'll, they'll just spend it on whiskey. So maybe it's better if they don't get paid very reliably or at least a little bit at a time. Well, that's it. That's a point of view. Yeah. Um, not shared by many who are actually in the right. Yeah. Um, so let's, let's get to that. What's the national political situation, which is making it difficult? In a way, people need to believe the war is over and that the army no longer has to be supported um, because the political will, it's, it's hard to say which is the chicken and which is the egg. Is the political will to support the army is running out or is the, you know, it's difficult. How's that Right, work? so so the political will to, to do anything was always difficult because, I mean, there is no national government. The, the states are really where the power lies. That's really where people want to serve if you're in politics. That's where the power is. So the Continental Congress, it's more analogous to like the UN today, kind of a diplomatic body that brings together sovereign entities for common purposes, and then they fight with each other. Um, that's what the Congress really is. They can't. Congress doesn't have the power to tell the states to do anything. They don't pass laws. They pass resolutions, kind of recommending policies to the states who may act or may not. And really, it's the war, the, the urgency of the war and fighting the war that, that brings the states together and gives the Congress some, you know, some ability to do things. But now that the war seems to be relaxing, the states really reassert their, their preeminence, and there's not a whole lot of sense of urgency to get things done. So you see that in things like supplying the, the war effort, dealing with the nation's finances, paying off the debts, that have been contracted during the war. There's not a whole lot of sense of urgency to do that. This this kind of jealousy or hostility between the states also emerges in in different things. Like, you know, uh, I see a lot side by side with all the financial problems. There's a lot of talk about what to do about the uh, what becomes Vermont and the claims that New York and New Hampshire have to that same territory. And that's a big uh, that that's a big hot potato that they they fight about. So you know where the borders between the states are going to be. That's a that's an issue as well. So yeah. So the politics, because the war seems to be kind of softening a bit, they can now fight to the death about other things. Those rivalries that have always been there during the war <laughs> reassert themselves. Yeah, and the national financial situation is even worse. Um, let's take a deeper dive into this as we can. It's really complex, uh, but it's 
it, it's I think some of the most important background to this since it it brings together the army and politics as well. Yeah, as the so, so the financial itself. side is, as you said, really complex. And but really, any way you any way you slice it, the the news is bad. Uh, just the, the cost of fighting the war went so far beyond what anybody had imagined. You know, even like the the wildest estimates were way off of what the the war cost to fight. Um, you know, just subsisting an army. The army was never more than like ten thousand men or so at any one time. Uh, maybe a little bit above that, but often far below that. But even the cost of supplying those men was enormous. Um, one, one of my favorite pieces of research I did was I, I tried to kind of visualize. So just how much does an army eat? You know, how much how much do they eat during the the, the, oh, during yeah. the war? So I kind of calculate. I, I found their daily ration. Okay, well, so you know, a pound of beef or whatever they, each man is just supposed to get. But how much is that really? So I, I did some digging into some agricultural websites and I found out how much meat do you get from a cow? Um, and I was able to calculate that it was, they probably needed about fifty thousand cows for to fight the war, you know. And I did that for pigs and, and milk and beer and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so it's just a lot. It's a lot that they needed. It's a lot. And so the cost of fighting fighting the war is just enormous. Um, to finance that cost, Congress did a number of things. One is they simply uh, printed money, and they issued their own currency, the Continental Dollar. And the actual dollars themselves, the currency, the notes, were designed by Benjamin Franklin, because Benjamin Franklin does everything in this period. Uh, and yes, he had patriotic images, and, and they're, they're kind of fun to look at. Uh, but the value just cratered immediately. And Congress ended up issuing almost $200 million, uh, $200 million in the, the nominal value of the notes before they just stopped doing it about three quarters of the way through the war. It was just, it was just worthless. And let's be clear, there is no, uh, there's nothing to indicate to anyone that it should be of any value. If you're a gold bug, there's no gold in the treasury. There's no silver in the treasury. If you're a silver, if you're a Brian supporter, Um, if you're like a believer in modern monetary policy theory, this might work. But um, if you're a believer in sort of central banking, well, there is no central bank and there's there's no guarantee that the United States would ever pay off its debts. They're really these just are paper and the Congress cannot stop itself from printing more and more and more and more. It's uh, inherently always an inflationary body. Right, exactly. I mean, it's the, the biggest thing is that the Cong- they have to win the war first, or else everything, everything is worthless. Yeah, right. So there's yeah. that. I mean, even if you know, even if we're backed by something, it's just backed by Congress's promise to pay, and that promise to pay rests yeah. on the ability to win. Yeah, it's, and I guess it's not surprising that sort of land certificates only become valuable. Once really the war is winding down. I mean, I I've, I guess I've, I've had students ask me why don't they just pay why, why aren't continental dollars backed up by land certificates that you know I talk about and say it's 1782 1783. Well, you know I, that's also has a lot to do with how the the political problems since Connecticut is claiming parts of Pennsylvania and most of Ohio and New York and their New Hampshire is squabbling over Vermont. Uh, Figuring out what pieces of Indian land to give to people as collateral uh, on a certificate—that's a difficult. Right, thing to I'm know. not sure how much. Right, this how much land does Congress even control? I don't know that they control any. Uh, that, yeah. That's what things are fighting about too—to no. try and get the states to cede their western lands, which they're overlapping claims for, yep. to Congress as some kind of security for for 
um, really for security for loans, really. Uh, yeah, but the states aren't, they don't want to do that either. So that's, yeah, the land's so, not really out there for Congress to use. Right. So Robert Morris is the person who tries to reconcile this and becomes very important to this story. So who is he? Right, so, and what so Robert he Morris do? was born in Britain and he came to um, the, the colonies in uh, as a teenager. Uh, his father died while he was a teenager and left him a inheritance. The way Robert Morris uh, Sr. died was – this is not the way to go. He, he was killed by celebratory cannon fire. Um, one of his ships yeah. was coming in and was celebrating. They didn't, they didn't fire the cannonball. They fired the wadding and like hit him in the chest or something and killed him. Um, uh, so yeah, that's, that's not the way you want to go. Anyway, so he has a, an inheritance and he partners with a, um, a, another young man who is from a wealthy Philadelphia merchant house. And he builds a very successful uh, merchant business trading all over the world before the revolution. Then he gets into, into politics in the Pennsylvania level. He serves in the Continental Congress as a representative from Pennsylvania for a time. Uh, Morris lives in, uh, in Philadelphia, and he's renowned as one of the most successful businessmen, successful merchants with ties all over, all over the world. And he really gets in the situation of sort of using his private credit to revive the nation's finances. And he becomes – he's named as the uh, superintendent of finance – that's a position that was newly created in 1781, really for Morris to use his expertise to do something to help the the, the nation get out of its financial problems. And at first, the solution really from, from Morris, this is not a great solution, uh, is to substitute his personal credit, to sign for things himself. Uh, that's the way he gets mm-hmm. the army supplied is to take responsibility for himself because people will sell goods to Morris or on his credit that they will not sell to the national government. Uh, so that's really Morris's first strategy. And these other strategies, he, he founds a bank that can make loans to the, the national government. And he is an advocate of um, increased taxes. So creating a tax, a kind of tax on imports called a impost, that the revenue from that impost would be supposedly used just by the national government, by Congress, to pay off its debts. And that becomes very controversial because there is no sort of national tax in, in during the war. It's all sort of state. The states figure out the taxes and send money or not to the Continental Congress to use. Or, yeah. So, is the Bank of North America is that Morris's bank? I mean, this is this is one of the this is very 18th century. It seems very strange to us. But remember, Morris has already put his private credit. He's buying things for the government on his private credit. Um, so these things are always very intermingled. Um, there's, as it were, the United States uh, and Robert Morris share the same po- set of pockets. Um, whose bank so is this? So the Bank this? of North America is um, Morris's creation. It is a public-private partnership. So it is a, a, a distinct um, corporation, but the uh, the the government is the primary investor and put up most of the capital. So, so very much like the Bank of the United States would later be under Hamilton. Uh, Hamilton you know, is, is getting his ideas from, from Morris earlier. Um, the bank, it has private investors also and a private board of directors, but Morris in his role as superintendent of finance has the right to inspect the books of the bank. So yeah, so it is very closely commingled um, between the, the public mm-hmm. and private 
areas. And the, the bank really, the reason why Morris really wants this bank is it, it's there to make sort of short-term kind of bridge loans to the, to the government. When they need to make payments, some bunch of notes are coming due. They need to make payments, but they haven't gotten the revenue from the states. Okay, they can go to the bank, get a short-term loan, cover those payments, and then put the money back. Hopefully, before you know, uh, the 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 loan from the bank expires. So it's all very short-term. Hopefully, very conservative loans that are being made. Uh, but you're right. Right, Morris is like you know, you know, I'll I'll take off my superintendent of finance hat put on my Bank of North America hat mm-hmm. and send money from one account to the other. Uh, yes, that, that gets him. Morris is often denounced. Uh, he has a, a lot of enemies for that kind of commingling. He got this these charges that he was getting rich off of the, the war, a war profiteer, earlier during the war when he was instrumental in secretly shipping supplies from Spain, from France, to the United States. It was often kind of done... To hide things from the enemy, it was done you know, under Morris's name, but the charge was that Morris was also hiding his profits from the, uh, the government in the United States as well. So, yeah, so Morris has um, you know, a hand in both, both of those and using kind of – again, it's using private credit, private loans to prop up the government is what he's trying to do. So, who are his political and fi- uh, well, political and financial enemies? The the Lees. Uh, uh, oh, there are a bunch of Lees, and the name of his chief. Yes, there are always there are always. Yeah, there are always a bunch Lees. of Lees. Um, the name of his chief Lee antagonist escapes me at the moment. Richard Henry, Richard Henry Lee, uh, Lee, probably. And Richard his Henry brother is in there and too. Arthur Lee, and there, of course. Um, yeah, they're all. Oh no, Arthur Lee. Arthur Lee is his chief antagonist in in uh, Philadelphia, at least. Yeah, so these always kind yeah. of reeking. Arthur Arthur Lee, Arthur Lee being one of the best haters in American history, um, really unchallenged in some some ways. Uh, yes, he never misses an opportunity to to rake uh, Morse over the coals. Or Benjamin Franklin, or John Adams, or Silas Dean, or the list of, of Arthur Lee's and uh, antagonists and targets for his uh, hate is, is yes. almost endless. Um, so there's Arthur Lee. There's also David Howell of Rhode Island. Um, what do they see Morris threatening? Well, they see Morris as uh, well enriching himself, so so privately corrupt, but also you know, creating a powerful central government that can tax people. Uh, against their will, and that's exactly what the the British were doing supposedly. That started the war. So, so Howell, for example, uh, a, a delegate from Rhode Island, it's one of the the people I, I happily met during this project. I never heard of before. Uh, you know, he's he's a, mm-hmm. he's presenting Rhode Island, which is opposed to the uh, impost tax, as being kind of the lone holdout of liberty that is threatened. And he has a great line where he says, you know, all the, the critics, they always, they, they always use what, what he calls the hocus pocus of necessity, right? Kind of a magic word that makes anything possible. <laughs> it's like, no, we're not going to bend to the, the will of this necessity. It's never necessary. Liberty is the only thing that matters. Um, so, so, yeah, so that's the kind of criticism that Morris gets. Personal corruption, but also that he's out to uh, upend the revolution and institute tyranny once more. What is their plan for financing? The uh, who, who, whose plan? How? Oh, they the think that the, that the nation is is wealthy enough that the states can do it. 
they don't need a um, kind of a new tax. You know that once the that the war is over, the British are gone, then um, then the cover the, the the economy is so productive that they'll be able to throw off enough revenue to pay all the debts. Okay, so. Um... Not the soundest investment yeah, strategy. If, if it's yeah, they have a wonder. Well, I think the, the there's a wonderful uh, point of argument about. I think it's Howell who's arguing. You know, we can take out loans today because we'll be able to pass along that to our to our children. And I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> That's like the opposite of what people argue today. So is that it's immoral to take on this huge debt because it's just passing on the children. Well, what Howell meant, well. Well, actually, that, but that, uh, in pra- in practice, David Howell does run American financial yeah. policy. So, well, what he meant in his defense is that he assumed that the country would be much richer in the future, and so it would be easier for their yeah. children to pay off the debts than it was for people just coming out of war. I think that that's the reasoning that, that he well, that's, gives. That's, uh, but yeah, it's one of those things where you read and like, okay. wait a minute, that's that's not what we're supposed to. That's not what people think, is it? And then he had to kind of puzzle out the system, yeah. the, the system of thought that makes that makes sense yeah so before we get into the tiktok of the actual the events of the newberg conspiracy or is it um let's uh talk about some of the myths that just will not die no matter how hard you push a pillow on their face um one of them is that uh some the newberg conspiracy is a plot to make george washington king i don't know how often i've heard that one um, professor Wikipedia. Yeah, I say, yeah. <laughs> wonder how Professor Wikipedia is rated on <laughs> RateMyProfessors.com. Um, yeah, well, so I think that really conflates two things and understands them incompletely. Each one. So the Washington as King uh, idea, I think, comes from an earlier incident in the May, May of 1782, when an officer named uh, Louis Nicola. Or Nicola. I don't. I, honestly, I don't yeah. uh, know how to pronounce his name. I, I've never, I've never heard of pro, uh, a standard pronunciation. Um, so name. anyway, the the officer uh, uh, Nicola there, uh, he was head of the Invalid Corps, and he's one of these guys who doesn't have a lot to do, and has you know his, his mind gets gets free reign. He writes a letter to Washington, kind of floating the idea of, you know, if. If the Congress doesn't come through and pay us what they owe us, we can just agree to take the, the our compensation of land, and we could form a new state out west, and we would model we could model a new state on the British model, you know, you know, scrubbed of its abuses, but really the British system, and that would be a way that we could find some compensation for us moving forward. The letter it never offers the crown to Washington and never says, hey, would you like to be our king someday? It's just kind of floating this idea to Washington. Hey, wouldn't, wouldn't it be okay if they don't, Congress doesn't come through, we can take land and we'll form our, our own state out in the West and live happily ever after. Um, you know, Nicola has a great line here. I love this line. He, he assigns all of his problems. He says all of our problems to officers come from what he calls Republican bigots. People who are too attached to Republican <laughs> ideals of liberty that they won't cough up a little money for their officers. Um, Washington puts this down pretty quickly. And this is a great letter. It's a great exercise of Washington restraining himself, but also really beating a guy up. Uh, he calls Nicola, he says, Sir. <laughs> and you know it's always bad when Washington calls you Sir, kind of that cold way. And he goes on and on about how this is a really dumb idea. 
uh, but in restrained Washington language. Uh, I offer a translation in, in the book where I say, you know, what Washington really means here is, yeah. you know, you, you are nuts. You're crazy out of your mind if we think this is a good idea. And what is wrong with you that you think I would think this was a good idea? Uh, Nicola yeah. then writes, I think, four it's... letters of apology, kind of groveling to Washington. No, 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 no. That's, yeah. that's not what I meant. That's not what I meant. So that's where the idea of a couple Washington things. becoming a king yeah, came that's comes what from. Gets, that's what gets going. Yeah, and it's it's almost unfair to call it an incident. It's one single letter from Louis Nicola. Uh, it's not it's not in the newspapers. It's not being discussed. It well, it's not being discussed amongst the officers of the army. It's one letter from this sort of amateur philosopher uh, who his kind of uh, un, there's a great article uh, which I know you know about from I think it was published in the journal the American Philosophical Society about trying to put this letter in context um, he's not actually offering a crown to Washington anyway as you say um, so it's it's been completely pulled out of out of all proportion to its real yeah what reality. I think maybe people don't realize you, you look at you know history and the American Revolution and these officers in Washington we assume that they were thinking deep thoughts all the time Sometimes they're, yeah. they're they're just dumb. They just say things they don't. They shouldn't say. Yeah. That's, that's, and Nicola, that's the beginning said, and end I mean, of it. This is, is just a dumb idea that he kind of flew off without thinking. Um, he's sort of an amateur enlight. Uh, he's one of the am- he's an amateur enlightenment mm-hmm. philosoph, and and he's uh, he the invalid corps is one of his many ideas. He has lots of good. He wants to start a military academy, uh, using uh, invalided officers to teach new officer cadets. I mean, he's uh, he's a little Benjamin Franklin himself. Um, this is one of his many ideas. It's also interesting. This is actually Charles Lee's idea from like 1776 or mm-hmm. 1775, is to ha- have a state of former officers and soldiers out in the Ohio Valley. He is, maybe he doesn't get as far as having a dictator, but it's one of Charles Lee's earlier ideas. Um, I think also another myth you hear is that um, Washington could have been king if he wanted to be one, which I also I think is a is a terrible. Myth. I don't know what you think yeah, about that. Yeah, it's one of those things that I think it's more about the politics of the 1790s or the early republic. I'm not sure where that gets starts to get attention. You know, it is to emphasize mm-hmm. really I think it is to emphasize, you know, the danger in that moment, 1790s or after that some people perceive of monarchists are threatening the, the republic. And, you know, if it weren't for Washington, yeah. we would have lost already. And, of course, Washington, you know, is kind yeah. of a revered figure after his, his death. It's like all that stood between us and those evil monarchists who our political enemies support was Washington. Washington's gone. There's nothing defending us now. All right. So I think it's more about the polit- politics of later than it was anything about the 1780s or any time Washington lived. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. I I also think that the only thing that if Washington or any or a figure like him uh, had declared themselves dictator, um, it would the American Revolution probably would never have stopped. It would have kept on going on a, mm-hmm. under a different guise as a civil war. I, it just I, it 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 it's a sort of a belief. It's imposing a sort of idea of American uh, central. Authority on the past, um, and people just don't realize how decentralized and, in some ways, uh, ardently Republican people have become by 1782. Um, Just there never would have been a a, a majority of people that would have accepted someone by that time, uh, accepted someone declaring themselves dictator or monarch. 
I mean, don't get me wrong. I think it's pretty amazing that George Washington quit. It's a historically unprecedented moment in just about every way. But local political culture in the colonies in the new United States is much stronger than people let on. Yeah, I think – I mean what – you think of Washington. He was so revered he could have done anything. Did well, he? he's so revered because he's very good at meeting the expectations people have. Um, and if he did something so yeah, exactly. so wild uh, to, to declare himself king, you know, he doesn't have people in a trance. You know, that they're, that would that would yeah. end his 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 prestige right then and there. Yeah, exactly. Washington people don't appreciate Washington as being one of the great crafty politicians. Yeah, he's very history. very underrated as a politician. Um, he is. He was a politician for a lot mm-hmm. longer than he was a general. Um, uh, he'd been running for office for for years, and he knows about he knows about the political currents and the sort of the warm updrafts of public opinion and how to use them to your advantage and how how to avoid the downdrafts. Um, so let's mm-hmm. get to the conspiracy. Uh, this, you know, so I read the book. I've read other books on it. I'm still confused. <laughs> it's very confusing. Did you find this? Did you feel that as you're working on this? To try to keep everything for like an enormous no, I chart on the wall of your study. I mean, how did you? So no, I don't have it? an enormous chart, and you know, making uh, esoteric okay. co- uh, connections between between different players. What does make it? Yeah, like one of those things with no, the post-its no. and the the pieces of yarn going back and forth, and the yeah, no, I, I have small uh, children that would never survive. <laughs> Um, so what makes it very difficult actually this is will be obvious when i say it but you don't think of it is just the lag in time between communication between the different players so trying to keep straight okay what does washington know when he's writing to hamilton but hamilton already knows some things that washington doesn't because there's about Uh there's about five days it's about average to move uh, a letter from Newburgh, New York, on the Hudson, where, where Washington is, to Philadelphia. And then he also, there are more obvious things like, you know, the news of, of how diplomacy is going in Europe. That takes a long time to get across. And just who knows what, when. That that drove me crazy, trying to keep all of that straight. And when they're writing letters and and all that kind of thing. Um, so that's... Well, how did you keep us? How did you keep us? Oh, I, you know, I, I don't have any great method. Um... Okay. You know, I perhaps when I was, I was when I was a grad student, I made a mistake by um, really relying on my ability to remember things. I was just like, remember this stuff, remember sources, remember where things are. Oh, um, and then as I get older and have children like, and stuff, here, here there's just not as much room in yeah. my memory anymore. <laughs> um, so I was really hoping for a pro tip, and now you're like you're not helping us out. Yeah, I mean just. No. It's kind of in some ways it's like brute force. Um, it really is. It's like I, I, well, it's more of that. I, I would kind of break down which letters I needed to look at at which point. Uh, one of the benefits of doing mm-hmm. kind of a, a fairly narrow time span in my research is that I could narrow down. Okay, so here are the letters I need for this section of the chapter, and then I could have that on a screen or print it out or my notes on it, and I could have that all in one place, and it could that. That's some, enough that I could hold it in my, in my mind at one point, and then move on to the next section. Okay, what letters do I need here? That that kind of thing. Um, so yes, kind of breaking it down to a, a, 
enough of a small enough chunk that you could work with at one time. And I guess, of course, I guess the, the smartest thing I did was to choose a topic that was only about two years in length uh, from beginning to end. So I'm not dealing with tens of thousands of letters over a 30 year period or something like that, but it's small enough that I could focus on just what I needed for that particular point that I was trying to make. Uh, so, so yes, yeah, so in that sense, I could you know, just keep track of it in a Word file or on my notes, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, so no, no elaborate uh, connections between different different people. So when does this immediate story begin? Let's say let's let's begin it right after Christmas, seventeen eighty two. There's a, a delegation of three officers going to Philadelphia. Who right. So there's so really the, the the core of the story. The the events start to move forward in December seventeen eighty two, when three officers, a delegation from the main encampment on the Hudson. Uh, goes to Philadelphia with a memorial, a list of uh, a narrative of the officers' grievances and a kind of a list of what they want. They're led by General Alexander McDougall. He is uh, originally from Ireland, I believe, um, Scotland, yeah, one of the British Isles, uh, from 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 Britain, and he. Uh, settled in New York, so he's a New Yorker for all intents and purposes now uh, for the story. And then he goes with um, Matthias Ogden, uh, who is from New Jersey, a colonel, and then a colonel from Massachusetts, John Brooks. So these three men are representing the army. They go to Philadelphia, they present their, their memorial, and you know the reaction generally amongst the congressmen is that this is a, the, the requests are just. The problem is that there's no money to pay them. What, 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 wait, what, what okay, are so the requests? Uh, yeah, you're right. Let, let's back up. So the requests are principally for back pay that they've never received and corrected for depreciation. The officers want pensions <laughs> that they had previously been promised by Congress. They had been promised um, half pay for seven years in one point, and then later after Benedict Arnold uh, changed sides, the officers were promised half pay for life. That's really – they have some other uh, ancillary requests, but that's really the core of it. They want their back pay and they want pensions. Uh, they're willing to offer, make a deal. They said, just give us a lump sum payment or some conversion of our, our pensions to a shorter time period. Okay, They're willing to negotiate on the amounts, but what they want is the money and the pensions. Okay. Now, would I be right in, say, in suggesting that it's not just the money that is important to them? I mean there's that this represents yes, it, something it's the, else. it's the money. Um, but it's also what they're going to do with the money. Uh, part of it is they're going to support their families, yeah. pay their families' debts. But a big part of it is that officers consider themselves gentlemen. And Now, gentlemen are not supposed yeah, to care about money because that's the kind of base thing that yeah. tradesmen do. Um, but they need money to live like gentlemen, to have the right clothes and the right, yep. uh, the right kind of houses and the right kind of decorations and have the right kind of parties for fellow gentlemen. Um, so they need, they need money to live a gentleman's lifestyle because being a gentleman is really amorphous in this period. I mean, you think like there's mm -hmm. a, a really strict line of succession. There's a kind of a strict uh, idea of, of who's a duke and who's a marquis and all that kind of stuff. And, and there is. But down where the American officers were in the United States, we don't have real, you know, real aristocrats, real lords and all that. It's all kind of hard to tell sometimes who's a gentleman, who's not. And, you know, by looking. You know, you know by how gentlemen carry themselves, how they act, how they talk, how they interact with other people, and the clothes they wear, and the houses they live in, the carriages 
whether they're drawn by four or six horses. I mean, only by two. You think, oh, that, that guy's just pretending to be a gentleman. If you can only have two horses. No, 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 no. Um, so little things like that. And the officers, they do not want to go home in rags, deeply in debt, because then all their neighbors will know that they're not really gentlemen. Now, some of these guys are independently wealthy, like Washington. Okay. There are very few of them are. Much more common is guys who went into the army from sort of modest backgrounds, and they wanted their service as officers to establish them as gentlemen. It was supposed to be the other way around. It's supposed to be you're a gentleman, then you become an officer. But there just weren't enough real gentlemen to staff the officer corps. So there was an opportunity to kind of, if you were the son of a merchant, okay, you wanted a gentleman status, you serve as a major in the army, then you go back home and like, hey, I'm a gentleman now. I I have my my major's rank to prove it. Well, that's not going to do a whole lot of good if you have your you have no money to live the lifestyle of a gentleman. So that's what a lot of it is about. Yeah. It's about the money itself to pay their debts, support their families, but also to keep up the status that they have become accustomed to. Um, I just want to point out there's a you know there's a mythology say in, in the south uh, that you know the real gentleman doesn't think about money and you can be a gentleman without and have a, a poor gentleman. Well, uh, a friend of mine, I think Brent Tarter, who's been on the podcast before at the Library of Virginia, has pointed out this part of the, the the myth of the Southern gentleman only begins when everyone is completely impoverished after the Civil War. Uh, prior to the Civil War, if you're a gentleman, mm-hmm. you have money. Um, that's how you operate as a gentleman. Uh, that's what makes you a gentleman, as David said. You just you just can't be you cannot it's it, you cannot be an impoverished uh, gentleman. Uh, prior to the Civil War, any more than you can talk about yellow having weight. Right, it just doesn't right, make exactly. any sense to them. Yeah. So they need their money. Uh, they need their honor. They need their reputation. They need to be gentlemen. Um, and Congress thinks this is all great, but, you know, shucks. There's nothing to get. Yeah, you. exactly. It's like, well, it's up, it's up to the states. You know, it's really, it really is up to the states. When the congressmen okay. don't have a lot of power one way or the other. And so, what can what does Congress do, or what do these what do these three officers do, McDougal and so they started working Brooks. the various representatives. I mean, it really comes around to um, coming. So, so Morris has an existing program uh, that he's yeah. had a lot of trouble implementing. You know, one part of the program is, is founding the Net, the Bank of North America, which he's able to do. But as far as kind of long term funding of the of the debt. Morris doesn't want, he doesn't have any illusions they're going to pay off the debt, really. He just wants to fund it so then uh, the credit is reestablished so then you can take on more loans in the future just to revive credit. Uh, so, so Morris would really like to see the implementation of the impost tax. So that would be a 5% tax on all imports. The problem is that politically, uh, a new tax like that would require an amendment to the Articles of Confederation, and amendments to the Articles of Confederation require the unanimous consent of all of the states. So they would need the approval of 13 state legislatures to get this done. Um, eventually, at the end of 1782, it looks like you're going to have all of them, um, or at least 11. Georgia is never represented, and no one really expects Georgia to really send any kind of message because they're occupied by the British and they're, they're far away. Um, so really, if they get 12, that'll be fine. Uh, but Rhode Island is the lone is the lone holdout. Rhode Island says no, we're not going to approve the impost. And then um, independently, 
uh, Virginia, which had approved the impost, they take it back. So they take it back. This is at the uh, um, architecture, the engineering of the Lee brothers, Arthur Lee and his brothers. They get Virginia to reverse its vote in favor of the impost. So losing those two means the impost is not going to affect. That happens just before the officer's delegation arrives. So Morris and some of other congressmen, Alexander Hamilton and some others, they would like to have the officers kind of put their reputation, their, their weight of their numbers on the line along with other advocates of the impost, other debtors, um, or other creditors, I'm sorry, other creditors, people who are owed money by Congress, kind of all pulled together to kind of send a message to Virginia, to Rhode Island, you know, you have to approve the impost to get us the money that we need. So that's part of the politics is kind of using the army to align with other creditors so that everybody can pull together to get the, the impost enacted to produce some money. So you're saying that there are congressmen who wish to use the army as a sort of political lever against their political opponents. Are you, are you so that I don't know if it would be – I would put it in the context of using other groups to do the same. So the, the army is not is is not un, is not alone. Uh, is getting the kind of interest of the army to be joined to the other creditors, people who loan money to the government, uh, and uh, really sort of other people who are interested in establishing the nation's credit. You can see kind of in that sense. So it's it's not just you know using the army. Um, it's a much larger politi- political strategy than that. Mm-hmm. So there are so who Robert Morris is part of this group. Who else is who else is joined uh, with him? Governor Morris is Governor Morris. Uh, Go- Governor Morris is not in Congress group? at this point. He is uh, Robert's um, assistant secretary in the um, uh, uh, finance office. Okay. Who else is is part of this congressional this this more? Yeah, uh, 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 Hamilton or, seems to be yeah. um, part of the, those discussions. Also. Uh, um, Alexander Hamilton. Alexander Hamilton. Uh, yes. I've heard of him. Uh, when when has he become a congressman? Oh, it is in, I believe, yeah, it's, uh, again, November of, I think, believe, November, December 1782, he starts in Congress. So, so right at the same same moment. Okay. Mm-hmm. And others like uh, Richard Peters, uh, a delegate from uh, Pennsylvania, was in, involved in this. Um, um, James Madison seems to have been sympathetic. Uh, on, on various points. And then some of the other administrators, um, the Secretary of War, mm-hmm. Benjamin Lincoln. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I, I hesitate to call it a Morris group because they also have their own ideas. Um, Benjamin Lincoln, for example, sure. is someone who thinks that the states should pay for the officers' pensions, not the uh, not Congress. Uh, you know, but he's more sort of in favor of a national form of government more generally just not on that particular issue. James Madison is generally nationalistic, but on things like the creation of the Bank of North America, he doesn't think that that's a good idea. So there's not it's not as if Morris is kind of calling the shots and everybody is in with him. These are people who are aligned in terms of the fact they'd like to see a more powerful central government, but on particular policies or the way to get there, they often have disagreements. 
So, so where is the TikTok of this story by the end of January, beginning of February? Is this stalled it out? Looks like, I mean, yeah, it looks like, yeah, it's stalled out. The Congress has just this maddening habit of discussing something, sending it to committee. The committee comes back with a report. Mm -hmm. They discuss that as the full body. They send it back to the committee, or they create another committee. And <laughs> it's just, it's just wild. Uh, like, how do they get anything done? Um, well, I mean, you serve in the faculty senate. You should yeah, exactly. Exactly. That, that's that's exactly the model I'm thinking of. It's like because each each <laughs> they they send things to committee, right, to to work up with this. But each congressman, each delegate wants to like edit the thing as it comes forward to the whole body, which defeats the purpose of sending it to committee in the first place. If everybody would just wants to have to take it apart when it gets in front of them, um, yeah, exactly. And and naturally. And uh, so we're just standing. Yeah, it's kind of buried in committee. Uh, They're making some progress, ready for a uh, moving, moving uh, things forward. That he but it, it really depends on the states and whether the states will go along. And there are some states that are not represented. They don't. They haven't sent their delegates. Uh, the, the terms of service to the Continental Congress are. They're not uniform or standardized in any way like we have today. Uh, there are different sizes to the delegation. Some states send two. Send some five. Some send two, but only one guy shows up, that kind of thing. So there's just not mm – -hmm. there's a quorum, but there's not the full body. The, there's not – not every state is represented at, at every moment uh, during the story. So partly it's – they're slow. Partly it's – there just aren't enough delegates there. Some, some measures you need seven votes for, a majority. Some other measures you need nine votes to do. Um, there's one point where they can't decide whether – this particular measure they're voting on requires seven or nine votes. So then they need to take a vote. Is this something that needs seven or nine votes? And they decide that it's, I don't know, they decided it's seven. And then they think, well, wait a minute. Does the committee to decide whether something needs seven or nine votes, does that need seven or nine votes? <laughs> it's like, come on. Then they realize, they talk about this for a while and realize, wait a minute. We have nine votes in favor of doing this anyway, so it doesn't matter. Like, okay. <laughs> so you, guys, you guys didn't think of that before you started arguing for a half hour about this? Um, so anyway, it's kind of stalled out. It's, it all sounds yeah, so familiar. It's, it's, it's kind of stalled out, but there are plans to move things forward um, involving the Army. So one plan that gets pushed forward, the Morris's favor a plan that the Army should openly declare that they will not accept a partial – um, a partial payment. By partial payment, they mean the army will not agree to be paid unless every other creditor is paid too. That's what the Morrises want. So the yeah. army to say, okay, don't pay just us, pay everybody. Because that's one one policy that's floated. Well, we'll just pay the army we'll, because they deserve it, they're soldiers, but we won't pay these other creditors because they're speculators and speculators are bad. Okay, so that's one plan. Another yeah. plan is that Congress should ask the army to stay in the field until they can figure out a solution. The real kind of thing that's moving this forward, what's kind of imposing a deadline, um, is the idea that peace, news of peace might arrive. So if a peace treaty arrives, which it could, I mean, as well as they know, it could arrive, uh, you know, it could arrive March 1st for all anybody knows, whenever the next ship comes in. So if that arrives, then this is a real crisis if the officers have not been paid. So the idea is, well, Congress will say, we'll keep mm -hmm. you in the field until we figure it out. That way, we'll have some time, but you'll, you officers will also have the, time, the, the guarantee you need that you're not going ha home empty-handed. Uh, empty okay, so that's the second one. A third – And then playing, and play, and playing things out, peace might arrive, and then they right. might have to think about it. 
I mean, that, that, that's the officer's crisis. Exactly. It's not right. Well, what crisis. is con- what is what are the officers going to do? So it kind of gives them some mm-hmm. surety that they will not be forgotten. And then finally, there's an idea that's floated. This is a new piece of evidence that I found. Others have not. I don't think. I think other people have seen the letter. They just haven't appreciated the significance of what's being said. Is that there's a a, a plan, uh, an expedient is what it's called in a kind of you know very careful language, to have Washington write to Congress asking Congress to keep the men in the field. So in the previous um, strategy I mentioned, is Congress initiating things. In this new expedient plan, it's Washington initiating things on behalf of the army. So that's kind of where things stand. Mm -hmm. They're trying to figure out what's the best strategy. Peace might arrive at any moment, throw things into into flux or into chaos as far as the officers are concerned. But officers haven't been told no. They just haven't been told yes. And what they're really being told is you'll have to wait while we figure it out. Well, uh, this is something my, my, my five-year-old is now saying to us a lot. When we tell her to wait, she says, it's hard. <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> that's that's yeah. a really deep insight. Yes, waiting is hard. And, and I and I think this brings us to the, really, the, for, for most historians, the infamous February 13th, the 1783 letter of Alexander Yeah, Hamilton. so this is a really... Um, I think misunderstood letter, but it, I, I don't fault anyone for misunderstanding it. Hamilton is very cagey, and he will not quite come out and say what he thinks. So in a letter that is so cagey, it's very easy to – well, it's very hard to figure out what he's really saying, and therefore it's easy to uh, kind of read into it Impute. many different interpretations. Yeah. Um, this is a key letter because mm-hmm. others have interpreted this letter as Hamilton kind of telling Washington, we're going to cause trouble. Okay, so you should be ready to to quiet things down um, once we cause a crisis, which we're going to do to provoke the uh, states and the Congress into enacting this tax. Okay, that's one interpretation. Uh, it's also been seen as kind of Washington coaching. Uh, I'm sorry, Hamilton coaching Washington on how to treat the officers, how to handle this crisis that's coming. Uh, you know, like like you can. I'm skeptical that one. Like you can coach Washington to do anything. Um, yeah, given that this is the first letter that wa- that Hamilton that we know of that Hamilton's written to Washington since they're falling out. Um, that's I'm skeptical right. on those grounds, and also the grounds that anyone is able to coach George right. Washington so I think, much. I, I think this is really Hamilton start. kind of feeling out. So I put this together with the expedient letter that I mentioned a moment ago. Um, this is where I think people have not appreciated the significance of that plan. Um, th- that idea of a plan of an expedient comes from Baron um, – I know about it from a letter from Baron von Steuben or von Steuben. Uh, he's another mm-hmm. one. I don't know how to pronounce his name correctly. Um, well, Steuben would be German, Germanic. Okay. Steuben is um, So – so that expedient, I think, I think it's Hamilton kind of feeling out Washington, seeing if he's in the mood to do something active to intervene on the army's behalf, on the officer's behalf, to openly enter the political fray in a way that Washington has really been hanging back from. Um, and then Washington complains to Congress, uh, but really sort of on the behalf of the army so they could win the war. It's a little bit different if he were to write on behalf of the officers to get them pensions which would seem to benefit only a select class of individuals, not the whole country um, together. So I think that's what Hamilton's doing, although I'll, I'll admit there's a lot of room for interpretation there. 
Um, but I think when you put it together mm-hmm. with the larger context, it's not Hamilton just being Machiavelli, the way many people think he was. It's he's trying to accomplish a particular purpose, which is very touchy, again, given the situation and also the fact that Hamilton has not really been in contact with Washington since they had an argument the previous year. Mm-hmm. And then related in one view of this, Hamilton's doing this Machiavellian maneuvering and then sort of an emissary of the Morris, Hamilton, whatever it is, group arrives in camp, right? Is that is that one way? Walter Stewart arrives in camp and he's bringing tidings. Right. So, so really, to... I, one of the things I found, one of the things I emphasize, I think Stewart plays the, really the, the key role. Um, and so I spent a lot mm-hmm. of time puzzling over what – what exactly did Stewart bring from Philadelphia to, to camp in the Newburgh, uh, New Windsor, Hudson Valley area? Because well, he, he's the link, right? And after he arrives, then you know everything—the storm erupts, right? That's where things go crazy. So, right, he's the one who's brought something new from Philadelphia. Is it instructions from the Morrises to uh, you know launch some challenge to Washington's authority? Or to um, you know rebel against Congress is that's what what uh, Stewart is bringing, or is it something else? Um, I can lean towards the position of something else is what Stewart's doing, mm-hmm. um, and I think that really what Stewart is bringing is not necessarily a message orders for the officers to follow, but he's bringing kind of his own interpretation of how events have been unfolding in Philadelphia, kind of filtered through what's important to him what he's heard, who he's met with. And, you know, one thing to to be aware of is that um, Stuart and his father-in-law, he's married into a wealthy uh, Philadelphia merchant family, they are both heavily invested in uh, loans to the government. So they are, they are creditors to the government, and they want to be paid for those loans, now, um, um, those loans that they've made. Uh Stewart himself, of course, also wants a pension and everything, but it's really those loans he's, he's, he has in his mind and his father-in-law's business. And if that goes south, then the whole family could potentially suffer. So I think that's kind of influencing his interpretation of events in Philadelphia and the way in which he talks to people in camp. I think he's the one who's saying, you know, Congress has abandoned us. we got to take things into our own hands. Or at least that's the message that emerges from the conversations that he has with other officers. I should hasten to mention here mm-hmm. that this is one place where our evidence really goes dark. We don't have mm-hmm. good information on what Stewart said to whom. Did, you know, I'm pretty sure he met with many of the other officers. Uh, John Armstrong Jr., who writes the uh, the infamous um, uh, anonymous letter that that touches off the real crisis in camp. But what exactly those guys talk about, we don't have a clear idea of because. This is one of the problems of historical interpretation. They are talking to each other face to face. They're not, you know. Exactly. I, I wish, yeah. I wish that they were, you know, twenty first century teenagers, because then they would text each other yeah. from the same room, and we, we'd have a record right. of that. Um, <laughs> if we could, if we could, you know, get the if we could get the logs, you know, I mean, that might we might not have the ability right. to do that in the future. That might. It might be as fungible yeah. as conversation. Um, so yes, yeah, so we just—it's kind of—it's—it's it's black, uh, black box, really. It's so it's kind of—that's yeah, why yeah. I'm kind of trying to put the evidence together in a way that makes sense to me. But I think it's more that I don't think Stewart was given orders. Okay, here are the guys who line up for a conspiracy. I don't think he was told that. 
So the next step is an anonymous letter that circulates around the camp. I referred to it in my introductory remarks. It's a certain, it's an unsigned note, really, that um, is, I guess, copied. Yes, there are multiple, multiple copies, copies, yes. That it, it gets spread around to all the various officers requesting uh, that representatives be selected and sent to a meeting. Um, who wrote it uh, and who's behind him? Who are the other people? Yes, in part so of that? it's written by John Armstrong Jr., who is the aide to uh, Horatio Gates, who's the, the second highest ranking uh, general in camp at that point. Um, if we had a higher production budget, we might place some yes, sort of Yes, exactly. Yes, that, that's what you need. Um, this is. Because this is part of the stories of Horatio Gates. That, uh, yes, Gates uh, was you know, a, a, a rival to Washington. Uh, he was the great victor of Saratoga. And, and there was a point early in the war when Gates was winning and Washington was losing where some started to think, well, maybe Gates would be the better option than Washington. Um, so it's, the letter is written in Gates's house, or at least the, the house that he's taken over hmm. to be his headquarters. And I've, you can visit it. It's a historic site today up in New York. I, I, I saw the room where it was, it was written and all that, um, uh, of the room where it happened, if we're going to mix uh, genres with the, the Hamilton, Hamilton lines. Um, <laughs> and anyway, so it's um, Armstrong, Stewart, and there are some others, uh, other sort of younger officers in that sort of circle around Gates. Uh, who have been friendly with each other. They'd all kind of served with Gates at one point or another. There's one estimate. There's maybe a dozen uh, of men who are, who are possibly there. Uh, Christopher Richmond uh, is another officer who I think he does the copying. And there's another one, I can't remember his name, who you know kind of distributes the, the, the circulates things later. So it's those officers to get together. And again, we don't know exactly what they talk about, but they produce this letter. Um, they agree amongst themselves to uh, call the other officers to meet. They want to meet the very next day to discuss having a stronger, uh, stronger petition to Congress. Now, this letter, Armstrong wrote it in the night, which is impressive, but I think maybe he should have slept on it until the next morning to really kind of give it one more draft because mixed in between some very reasonable requests, Things like, you know, we should send another letter that is decently worded but bolder than before. Okay, that, that, that sounds fine. He has a more extreme language in there that really everybody fixates on where he tells the army to, what he says, consider its alternatives. And really he's saying that if peace should arrive, then we don't have to lay down our arms and go home. We can stay in the field and we can, uh, you know, just wait and pressure Congress until – we are um, given what we want. Or if war should continue, we don't have to fight. We can abandon the country to its own devices. And that's really the most inflammatory part that people seize on as really sort of the officers threatening civilian authority. But that's only part of it. There's a more reasonable part of it as well. And I think it's a portion of this is simply that, that Armstrong and his you know, co-authors there, who are, and there's certainly this is a group effort, they did this quickly and didn't really think it through exactly what they were saying. Mm -hmm. This letter gets around, and I believe it's – is it Jedediah Huntington from Connecticut who just says that um, Washington is amazingly agitated, um, which I take to be <laughs> yes. Yankee yeah, yeah, Yes, exactly. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, it's one of those moments where Washington probably, you know, he can lose himself to both joy and anger. And this is probably yes, one of the Washington, he, he could really un unload on his uh, his military family, um, his his, his yeah. aides. And yeah, there are probably some loud, some loud moments at his headquarters. I mean, yeah. Yes. Um, so 
and, and he sees this. This is for him. This is the, the crisis. Why, why is it the, the well, crisis? Washington? Uh, well, it's Washington sees this as a conspiracy. I mean, he's you know one of the first interpreters of the event as a conspiracy against against the army, mm-hmm. trying to drag the army into the politics of the moment. He had. And so he sees this. He sees this as being written yes, by he Governor suspects Morris. Morris. Most likely, he suspects Morris. That's kind of the rumor around headquarters. Supposes Morris did this. Uh, Washington doesn't believe any officer wrote this. Uh, he says it must have come from Philadelphia. And kind of a, uh, yeah. Armstrong wouldn't like this. He, Washington suspects that no officer could have had the talent to write it. Uh, so, <laughs> so Armstrong <laughs> actually spends the rest of his life trying to take credit for this without really kind of being blamed for it. Because he wants everyone to know that he was talented huh. enough to pull this off on, on such a short schedule. Um, it's really kind of funny. It's like, yeah. you know, I know I was talented enough to, to do it. Not that I did, but I could have. <laughs> no, certainly. Yeah. So Washington really sees this as a conspiracy. He had recently received letters from Hamilton and from Joseph Jones, a, another delegate, a, a, the delegate to Congress, uh, one of Washington's neighbors in Virginia, warning him that there are these rumors floating around that the, that the, he was starting to lose his popularity in the army. And Washington had kind of brushed this off as just a lot of heated talk in Philadelphia. But once he sees this letter circulating in New York, he starts to think, oh, no, you know, th- those rumors might be true. There might be something going on. And he thinks that the this has been expertly timed with the arrival of um, – uh, Stewart from Philadelphia, and then the uh, appearance of this letter it couldn't possibly be a mistake. It must be something from Philadelphia that has been sent. Couldn't, to pos- couldn't possibly be a coincidence. It couldn't possibly right. be a coincidence. It's you know the, how we always fall into yes. And of course, in the 18th century, there's no there are no accidents. Everything must have been calculated by somebody no. else. There's a, there's a certain way in which the Newtonian universe leads to conspiratorial thinking, except that conspiratorial thinking has always been around. But, you know, there's always got to be – now at least you have the, the, the excuse of action and reaction. Uh, there, there always has to be something, some impetus, something that, that led this there to be impetus for this. Um, so what this leads to is the, the confrontation, the great scene, the temple of virtue, this enormous log meeting house – uh, Horatio Gates of all people chairing the meeting, and then the late arrival George Washington rides up on his white horse, uh, gets off, gives a speech, and it's over. But you're suggesting throughout the book that there never was a conspiracy, which is a sad letdown for a book about. Yeah, so many ways it would have been. It would have been much better if I un- un- unearthed the conspiracy and the threat to the republic in his very first days, and you know, it would have been a much more sensationalist, sensationalistic book, and you know, the kind of thing that gets you on TV and uh, that kind of stuff. So, my, yeah. my sort of personal self-interest would have been much better served by having a more sensational story. Don't don't worry; those books. Will okay. Yes. To be <laughs> um, I just, yeah. you know, honestly, I just <laughs> didn't find the evidence for it, and uh, you know, the part of this is that I'm skeptical of conspiracy thinking in general. So I, I, I would put that out there. Why? Why? Why are you because, suspicious? Because of it, I think man? I think like, the world is simply much too complex for conspiracies to really work as often as people want them to work, and I think what conspiracy thinking mm-hmm. does is in some way shield us from really the awful reality that our lives are not in anyone's control, um, that there's randomness in the world. And, you know, I, this is just going to be morbid, right? I mean, I, I don't think, ahead, you know, I don't think I'm going to get in a car accident on the way home today. 
but I might, you know, and I don't like to think about that. I mean, that's really, that's really not something you, you can't function that way thinking that, that way, but it could happen. And if it happens, it's probably not that anybody was out to get me. It would be a, conf, a you know, confluence of many different factors all coming together at once. And, you know, that's, that's just hard to live that way, thinking that your life is really not in your hands. Uh, I think one way to think uh-huh. about that gives people some kind of perverse comfort maybe is, well, I have an enemy who's out to get me. I can identify who they are. Mm-hmm. They are, um, you know, there is some, somebody is in control. It might not be me, but there's somebody. And if I can fight against that person, I can enact policies to, to restrain the activities of those, of those people, then we can finally be completely secure and my life can be in my own hands again. I don't have to worry. Well, yeah. that's just not, I don't think that's the way the world is. That's, you know, um, you know, it just doesn't happen that way. It's, and it's hard to think it, about it. <clears throat> I've often heard from people that uh, work in, mm-hmm. say, D.C. or New York or New York or Hollywood. Uh, the less I think it's William Goldman, uh, the screenwriter, late screenwriter in his, in his autobiography. His first rule is no one knows what they're doing. Uh, and I think that's true for when you start to examine the back of the mm-hmm. sausage factory or how the lemonades being how the lemons get crushed. You start to realize, heck, it's true for universities and colleges too. Uh, we actually, a lot of us don't know what we're doing. Uh, that's not something we right. want to live with. <laughs> yeah, not, I mean, this is not, yeah, that's not a whole lot better than, than there's a conspiracy or somebody's out to no, get you and everybody's incompetent. But. No, it's not. But it's what's even worse is it's not what you want to believe mm-hmm. if you're a voter, an, inve- an investor, or someone who's paying for their children's college education. So... You, there's always a presupposition that people know what they're doing. And if they know what they're doing, then they might mm-hmm. know better than you. And they might be, and then conspiracy. Um, so I, I, that could be part of it. The other thing, as I said in my notes to you, uh, the 20th century is an age of conspiratorial thinking. Uh, the Jews run finance. The kulaks are hoarding food to uh, destroy the state. Um, and yet those are both, those are conspiratorial thinking that's held by actual conspiracies that took power. You know, we're going to conspire together and overthrow the bourgeois, uh, the or and create the an Aryan state. Uh, we're going to conspire together and create a, a, a socialist republic, a, a Soviet. Um, so we got a problem with the conspiracy thinking, and sometimes conspiracies are actually there, um, and yet conspirator th- conspiratorial thinking is almost always false. So how do we square that? Yes, I think you're, you're right. There are. I don't want to deny that there are ever conspiracies. That there's no such thing as, as collusion or, or anything like that. Um, you know, one of the saddest lessons I've learned is that you know, as an American Catholic, is that you know, the, the, there were elements of the church who were trying to um, trying to cover things up, and that's a, a, um, the call yeah. was Russ, Russ uh, Douth that made that point several months ago. And it's one that really resonated with me. Um, Especially with especially with this book and publication. Yes, it's something I think about. You know, I think think about a lot. Um, So yes, there are real conspiracies. The 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 assassination of Lincoln and and all all that kind of thing. I just what I what I try to encourage people is that conspiracy should probably not be the first explanation. Right, this shouldn't be the first thing you go for at at the exclusion of all other explanations. Um, There has to be evidence. It's like anything else. There has to be evidence for it. It can't simply be well. That's just the way people are. 
or you know, you know that mm-hmm. those people are always out to get us, or the, the, you can't trust the government and that kind of thing. Um, you know, you, you mentioned you know, the very ugly anti-Semitism. You know, plays into that. Like, well, you know that Jewish people are just like that. Well, well, no, that that's not. Yeah, okay. There's no evidence for that. Um, so to look for the evidence first and foremost, and if, and if the evidence is there for conspiracy, I mean, you, you have to you have to affirm that it's there. Um, you know, you really mm-hmm. do, but just to not see that as the as the primary mode of interpreting the past and the world around us—that's what I really like to challenge. Yeah, I'd also I'd, I'd also say that you know I gave examples of both Nazism and, and, and mm-hmm. Lenin, Hitler, and Lenin. Those were conspiracies conducted right. in full view. Uh, Lenin uh, could mm-hmm. hardly stop writing. He had like a problem with that. I mean, he was announcing his conspiracy nonstop. Hitler wrote his biography and his autobiography in prison, announcing his political manifesto. Uh, this was a conspiracy that was was done in in, in public, um, with the conspiratorial thinking as a as a bonus. Um, that was you know that was part of the whole plan. Uh, Lincoln, that's a good example. John Wilkes Booth, John Wilkes Booth, and say the nine eleven um, hijackers. Uh, we are always surprised when they weren't perfect. I think that's part of conspiratorial mm-hmm. thinking too. Um, that uh, well, there must have been a deeper conspiracy because th- th- no one would have these bumbling guys do things. That's ridiculous. Be- because the part of conspiratorial thinking is always assuming that things are much more perfect in the conspiracy world, sort of you know uh, mm-hmm. Earth Two apparently, than they are on Earth One. Where people make mistakes, people chicken out. You stab William Henry Seward eighteen right. times; he still lives. Um, you manage to get through, um, you know, security in the airport, even though you're sweating and you don't have a mm-hmm. return ticket. You know, they we want this to like we think. Oh, well, on Earth two things are conspiracies are perfect. That wouldn't happen. That these guys couldn't be the ones who did it, mm-hmm. but they were. Yeah. Um, Let's talk about civil-military sure. relations. Um, this has been uh, the Newberg conspiracy. I'm going to put that in. I hope yes. I the, the uh, scare quotes around the conspiracy. Uh, that's been um, that's been sort of the er event, the 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 mythos, the foundation of much discussion of civil-military relations. Um, I don't know, maybe since the 19th century, but certainly for the, since Richard Cohen wrote his uh, book, Eagle, The Eagle and the Sword. Um, how does this change sort of the way that we think about civil military relations if this wasn't a sort of sophisticated conspiracy? Right, so I, I should emphasize that just because it wasn't a conspiracy, that doesn't mean it wasn't dangerous. Okay, if you can, you can follow uh-huh. all those negatives in there. Uh, it, it was dangerous because what I mean, you know how things. It, the, the nation was very. There's a lot of suspicion between um, civilians and the military, and amongst the states, and there are a lot of, of very hard feelings. And you know what happens when you get a, a bunch of people who come in one place and they start complaining about things. If the meeting had gone forward according to the original plan as outlined by uh, Armstrong and others, you could have easily seen things go sideways, get out of hand. The officers get riled up. Even guys who are kind of moderate or didn't you know, want to go along at the beginning could have been swept along. That's just the way passions go. Um, you know, have you ever been to an HOA meeting, right? You get a bunch of people who are angry about their lawn, and then they start ra- ranting and raving about the landscaping of the whole community, that, that kind of stuff. Um, it happens. That's the way people are. So this could have been very dangerous if 
the officers had just gone a different way if the moment had had changed. Um, so I think it's really important to emphasize the danger of the moment, even if it's not a conspiracy. Um, accidents can still be deadly. <laughs> so as far as civil-military relations go, I think what this episode does is really highlight how important it is to understand the context of the time and the difficulty that civilians and the um, military had in understanding each other and to keep that at the forefront of their minds. Because one thing that Washington does really well is he's able to appeal to both sides. He knows how to make an argument that will appeal to his civilian leaders, but then he also knows how to tell the officers, hey, trust me, right? I've been here with you the whole time. I've suffered as you have suffered. Okay? I know that you're angry. I know you've been treated badly, but still trust me. And I trust Congress, so therefore, if you trust me, you should trust Congress. And then he's very good at going the other way and saying, you know, our officers, they face temptation, but they have uh, come through it resoundingly. This is just another example of why they deserve to be trusted, because they, because they can face temptation and resist it. So he knows how to present the ideal case to both sides and speak to both in a language that they can understand, appealing to the assumptions that both sides have. And that's really I mean, we, we talked about this at the beginning to bring things back full circle. Washington's political skill is very underrated, and he brings off that moment really masterfully. And able to bring that kind of unity be between the two sides is just really astounding the way he does it. My guest today has been David Head. He is the author of A Crisis of Peace, George Washington, the Newburgh Conspiracy, and the Fate of the American Revolution. And if you want to find out how what Washington does, you're going to have to read the book. David, thanks so much for being oh, with us been, today. It's been a pleasure to be with you. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.